Bible reading is from Micah, uh, chapter 7. It's all there. What a misery is mine. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman has come, the day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Do not trust a neighbour, put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonours his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's own enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls has come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria, the cities of Egypt. Even from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as the result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. 
They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be, af- will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. This is the word of the Lord. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak, that you are a God who is not silent, and that your word is new every morning. O Lord our God, we long to hear you speak to us today. Bring this word of life into our hearts and minds. We might hear and know and understand that there is no other God like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come today to the end of our journey through the book of Micah. And it's wonderful that today's passage is not only so honest about the world in which we live and the challenges that we face, but it ultimately seeks to lift us up from the darkness of this broken world with all its troubles and to bring us back into the light and hope of the God who saves. For there is no other God like him. There is no other God like our God, a God who is loving, patient, Righteous, kind, holy, and absolutely true. A God who is reliable. A God who answers prayer. All other gods are images and idols, mere counterfeits that cannot save. But our God is the living Lord and there's no one else like him. He is the hope of the humble poor. He is a light to those who live in darkness. He is a shepherd to his people. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. And Micah rejoices especially in the fact that he is the God who saves. He says in verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. How important it is to be convinced of this gospel truth that our God is a God who pardons sin and forgives transgression when we turn to him with all our hearts. How important it is to know this, to understand this and to rely upon it. 
Today we're going to see why it is so important to believe this truth and to live by it day by day. For like us, Micah lived in a time of civilizational decay. The church in his day had lost her way, having built her house, as it were, on the sandy ground of self-reliance. And now that house was about to come crashing down. Although Micah lived in a time of relative prosperity, that prosperity was about to be swept away. God's people were about to be brought low by the evasions of the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians. And it would all end in tears and in exile. There was such a decline of faith in Israel and such a serious deluge of sin and immorality that the whole nation was becoming rotten to the core. No one could be trusted anymore. In fact, not even the members of your own household. How sad. And yet we also see in our passage today this great rock of hope which God is holding out to Micah and to us in this passage. This is the hope that even when we stumble, even when we fall, let not the enemy gloat over us, for we will rise in the strength of the Lord. And may God help us to lay hold of this hope today that we might see a season of revival in our church and in our nation. Somebody recently asked me this question, will there still be a Presbyterian church in Australia in 10 years' time? Is there a future for our denomination? I didn't laugh. Because where will the next generation of leaders come from if we don't raise up new people to ministry now? There are so few new students applying for ministry and there are many who are leaving. I think there's over 30 ministers leaving this year, last year recently anyway. It was four students coming in. Who's going to stand for the truth of the gospel in the next generation? Who will give? Who will go? Who will pray? We need to ask the Lord to do a miracle of grace in our time because it's not just the Presbyterian denomination that's facing this challenge, it's all the evangelical denominations. I was interested watching part of uh, George Pell's funeral. I don't know if you saw it, but his brother gave a very interesting speech, and and so did uh, a former Prime Minister, um, Mr Abbott. And, And amongst the common points that were made is that there has been a massive influx of people to the Catholic uh, church to, up to, to undertake uh, practice, to, to prepare for ministry um, because of the courage that uh, Reverend George Pell showed through his trials. Uh, not so in the evangelical denominations. Will there be a Presbyterian church in 10 years' time? I pray God there is. We need to ask the Lord to do a miracle of grace in our time. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will breathe new life into our churches and send a revival through our land. We need to prepare for God to awaken our hearts and renew our zeal for the lost. 
Well, the truth is we have some big challenges ahead. Well, our passage today actually does give me hope because it's not because of anything in us, but it's because of the Lord who is faithful and he will preserve his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In verse 20, Micah declares, you will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to Israel's fathers in days long ago. Micah is confident in the Lord because God is faithful and he will prove true to his promises. So as we look at our passage today, my theme is revival and Micah will be our guide. First, we'll look at the sad decline of the church in Micah's day and how it made him feel. That's living in a broken world in verses 1 to 6. Then we'll look at Micah's plan of prayer and action, which I find very helpful. I've called it Micah's hope in verses 7 to 17. And then we'll need to anchor our hope firmly in the Lord, who alone can save us from this mess. Indeed, we must wait patiently upon the Lord. So now let's enter Micah's world and see for ourselves what was going wrong. Why had the church fallen into such perilous decline? My first point today is living in a broken world. And straight away we can feel Micah's pain as we come to verse 1. He says, what misery is mine, or, or literally, woe is me. Woe is me, I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The micro is overwhelmed with the state of the church as he sees it, the church and the nation in which he lives, despite the continuing prosperity which is temporary and is about to be swept away. When he looks around, what he sees is a church which effectively Satan has made a playground of. But the Lord has permitted this because his people have turned away from him, have rejected his word for their lives, and are now paying the price for their folly. They've fallen below the line of despair. They have lost sense of reason and truth and justice. Words are being robbed of meaning and the gospel is not being sent forth. So Micah says he feels like one who gathers fruit, gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. In other words, it's like there's nothing left to eat. It's already been harvested. The grapes have gone and he goes through. Usually there's supposed to be a second gleaning that's left for the poor, but even that seems to have been swept away. The grapes have gone. To even find a small cluster of godly men or women seems impossible. So few grapes are left, so few good figs that he craves. The former generation of godly leaders have, have, as it were, died out and they have not been replaced. They have not been replaced. It seems to Micah like he's, he's watching a train crash about to happen and the trouble is that he himself is on the train. He can see where the destination's heading. He's part of the whole process of God's impending judgment. So in verse 2 he says, and it is striking, the godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. 
All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The only thing they're good at is being bad. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. Well, it sounds just like our politicians today, doesn't it? Yes, we live in a corrupt world too. A world in which the elites and the powerful are looking after themselves. The rich get richer and the poor get the picture. There's a song that goes like that. Well, a fish rots from the head, they say, and so do nations. That's the problem in Australia too. And I ask you, can a voice to Parliament heal the broken heart of our land? No. You can put in rules and laws and give money and do all of these things, but what we really need is a revival. I mean, look at Alice Springs. If you've seen what's been going on there, it's not new. It's been going on for years and years, and just suddenly the media has taken a slight interest in it. The PM flies in and out for four hours and then spends three days at the tennis. I was watching an interview with a nurse very distressing interview about the children that she has to continually care for. Little children, four years old with chlamydia. All kinds of problems and troubles. The violence, the alcohol, the sexual abuse goes on and on and we turn a blind eye. It's not only our leaders who have failed, surely it's the church as well. As we live our comfortable lives, we fail to be salt and light in our world. We just don't do the job that God has called us to do. And I suggest the proof is in our prayer life and I point the finger at myself. Our prayer life is pathetic. The Apostle James was very clear about this. He says in James chapter 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they arise from your desires that battle within you, your hedonistic desires? You want something but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your desires. Well, may the Lord have mercy on us. The old Christian virtues that once underpinned our nation have been eviscerated. Not that Australia was ever a particularly Christian nation, but it's been a lot more aware of the truth of the gospel in the past than it is now. And the further away we move from Christ, from Christ and from God, the worse 
things become. In the latest edition of the Quadrant magazine, Christopher Akehurst makes a very interesting point. Whether he's a Christian or not, I don't know, but I do agree with this. He thinks that our civilization cannot survive in its current form. He says this time it's different. And society's faced many challenges before, but he says this time it's different because for the first time in history, our civilization is not being handed on. Its beliefs and values stop with us. They are either not imparted to the next generation or they are mocked and dismissed as evil. So when you live your life and you put your children in childcare, what are they being taught? And when they grow up to five years old and you send them off to school, what do you think they're being taught? And when they grow up and finish primary and go to high school, what do you think they're being taught? By the time they get to university, what do you think they're being taught? So that when they go into the workforce, what do you think they're understanding is we have downgraded the precious role of mothers and fathers we've undervalued the family we've set aside the gospel of Christ of praying with our children reading his word together as family Schools and universities have become incubators of grievance politics and Marxist dogma. Our nation's history has become a cause of shame. People are suffering because greed is a cruel master. And now for the first time in history, our civilization is not being handed on. Instead, it is being deconstructed and pulled down. And it's the leaders who are doing the damage as the Christians who are standing by. Micah says in verse 4, well, this cuts, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. Try to draw near and you just get scraped and cut and prickled. Well, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus gives a sermon about what will happen in the last days and his words to his disciples bear strong parallel to Micah chapter 7. Jesus said to his disciples that in the last days, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death and all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Micah says much the same thing in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, Do not trust a neighbour, put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonours his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. So we may think it's bad today, but it's been worse in Micah's day. 
God preserve us that we don't end up where his society was because that's the trajectory that we're on, isn't it? What a tragedy for our nation that we should choose to go down this path. And by the way, you can't educate your way out of this. There's no maths formula. There's no English poetry. There's no computer program that can undo what we're doing to ourselves now. The fact is, we need a revival from the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit to turn the hearts of the people back to him that people might recognise that their behaviour is wicked and hurtful and damaging to others and to themselves and displeasing to God. We need a revival from the Lord. But John Calvin once said, the whole history of the church is one of sleep. Sometimes deeper, sometimes lighter, with a few waking moments. Gosh, we love our sleep. Well, the time for sleep is over. We need the Lord to revive us again. You know, the last great revival in Australia was over 70 years ago now. It was the Billy Graham Crusade of 1959. And here's a lesson from history for you. Before 59, there was 58. What happened in 1958, you ask? A year of prayer. 1958 was a year of prayer. There were so many places you could pray that people just prayed all night. They prayed for hours and hours and hours. They gathered to pray together because they wanted to pray together. Billy Graham said this. He said he believed that more prayer was made for his Melbourne and Sydney Crusades in 1959 than any other event in the history of the Christian church. That was Billy Graham saying that because it wasn't just in Australia that they prayed, but around the world people were praying for Sydney and Melbourne and New Zealand for for this tour that Billy Graham undertook. That's quite a claim, isn't it? That Billy Graham said he believed that more prayer was made for his Melbourne and Sydney Crusades in 1959 than any other event in the history of the Christian church. People prayed and God answered. There is a very simple formula there. People prayed and God answered. During the 15 weeks of Billy Graham's time in Australia and New Zealand, nearly one quarter of the the population heard the gospel. One quarter of the population in 15 weeks heard the gospel. The attendance in Sydney was 980,000. And there are people still alive today who came to Christ at the 59 crusade and one of them is with us this morning. It's Ross who's sitting with us today. I call him out. Sorry, brother, but it's true, isn't it? What a time of God's outpouring of grace it was. And there have been sort of smaller movements since as well, but that was the big one, 59. Crime rates dropped. Alcohol consumption fell by 10%. Bad debts were suddenly repaid. Illegitimate births were reduced. The police suddenly had nothing to do. Lives were changed. Families were strengthened. Churches grew. The whole nation was blessed. And do you think God can't do it again? Of course he can. And we need him to. 
So don't despair, but lift your eyes to the Lord, because this is a time to wait and watch and pray. For the Lord is a light to those who live in darkness, he is a shepherd to his people Israel, and he is the Lord of his church. So let's pray that our God will breathe life into those embers of revival and restore the hope of his people again. God is calling us to pray. I wonder if you agree. So my second point for today is Micah's hope. He says in verse 7, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. I wonder how many people gathered with Micah to pray in those days. I bet it wasn't a crowd of thousands. But there would have been some who, like him, were moved to pray. And from a human point of view, the situation may seem hopeless, but Micah's eyes are set in faith upon the Lord. And his confidence is in the God who saves. And so in verse 7, he draws this line in the sand. The enemy may gloat, but I will put my trust in the Lord. But as for me... I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Well, that's the kind of faith that leads to revival. We need to pray and prepare for God to awaken our hearts and renew our zeal for the lost. Like I said before, we've got some big challenges ahead. And the first problem is to overcome our own sinfulness and neglect. Well, Micah has a plan to help us turn things around in the following verses. So here are some lessons for us today. Lesson one, revival begins with repentance in verses eight and nine. Revival begins with us dealing with our own lives before the throne of our forgiving and gracious God. So Micah says, do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. That's repentance. It's accepting responsibility for the things that we've done wrong. It's waiting upon the Lord. And then he says, I, he will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. I like to put a capital R on righteousness. I will see his righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ, in, in all that he has done for me, in, in his power, in his wonder, in his majesty. Just as John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus by calling people to a baptism of repentance, so we need to start by confessing our own sins to God. And we've just received the Lord's Supper this morning, but we need to continue on in that. Again, when the Apostle Peter preached at Pentecost, he called the people to repent and put their faith in Jesus and to be baptised in his name. And the Bible says that about 3,000 were added to their number that very day. A revival. Revivals begin with repentance. And Micah knows it. He confesses that he has sinned against God. He acknowledges his guilt. 
Then he puts his hope in the Lord, confident that when Messiah comes, his case will be established and he will see the righteousness of God. And then at last he will be vindicated in the sight of all his enemies. But Micah is not praying for himself only. He's also praying on behalf of the true Israel of God. I think he's also praying for us. It becomes clear as we come down to verse 10 where the enemy of Israel is personified as a wicked woman. The same thing happens in the book of Revelation where Babylon is called mother of prostitutes. So here you have sort of two women. One, the daughter of Zion. She is virtuous. She is the church. The other woman is the enemy of the church, perhaps signifying Assyria, giving all that uh, Micah says about Assyria back in chapter 5. There may be an individual person, but it seems that Micah is thinking as a personification of all the challenges that Israel is facing. Two women, two cities, two ways of life, two cultures. Which one are you? Which one would you like to marry? The second lesson Micah wants us to learn about revival is that a Revival has eternal consequences. Revival has eternal consequences. Have a look at the verses. Then my enemy will see it, in verse 10, and will be covered in shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. God has promised to vindicate his people and in righteousness to judge and cast down the enemy to eternal shame. So choose wisely. Jesus said this would be the outcome of the final judgment, that the wheat will be separated from the weeds, the sheep will be separated from the goats, but the church of God will be exalted and glorified in Christ. So if the Lord is speaking to you this morning, calling you to repentance and faith, don't delay, don't put it off. Choose wisely. Choose life today. Revival has eternal consequences. The third lesson in our passage is that revival leads to growth, growth in the church in verses 11 and 12. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, the whole fertile crescent, as it were, the world personified. And more than that, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain, a great ingathering of people to the Lord's Messiah. So the church always grows when revival comes. And though the world may be tossed by many troubles and trials, we have this opportunity of grace to come before the Lord, to enter into fellowship with him and his people. The church always grows when revival comes. But even in the best revival, in this temporary life of ours, revival will only last for a season, a bit like Lazarus 
being raised and then having to die a second time to be resurrected a second time. You know, revival is kind of the preparation for eternity and revivals come for seasons as the Lord graciously permits. It'd be lovely to live in a constant revival, but that's not how it is. But when revival comes, the church always grows. And the fourth lesson which Micah would have us learn today is that revival brings glory to God. In fact, there are sort of pseudo-revivals where people get very excited and do all sorts of things and really don't bring glory to God. Well, that's, that's a counterfeit, isn't it? You can tell because it doesn't bring glory to God. This is very important. Real revival always brings the glory and the praise to God. And so in verse 14, Micah prays for the Lord's protection and care of the people. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. Then in verse 15, notice the Lord himself replies. There's quotation marks around it. It's God answering this prayer. As in the days when you came out of Egypt... I will show them my wonders, my great and mighty wonders, my powerful and life-changing wonders will be revealed again, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, so it will be again. A time of revival, bringing glory to God. The wonder is, you see, that even the Gentiles, when Christ comes, even the Gentiles will put their trust in the Lord and his name will be glorified not only by Jews, but by people like you and me. And the good news will go forth even to the ends of the earth. And so in verse 16, we see a foreshadowing of that. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God, and will be afraid of you. They will fear you because you are Lord. So God will bring about such a remarkable transformation of hearts around the world that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will know the Lord, will come to him, will worship him in spirit and in truth. He'll outdo all our expectations. He'll do more than all we ask or imagine. And he will glorify himself in us and through us. And so with the prophet Micah, we wait and watch and pray for the Lord's return when we will see his righteousness. We come back now to where we first began, to the final part, where we were urged to wait patiently upon the Lord. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And Micah agrees in verse 18, these wonderful words. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives transgression, who forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. This is an invitation to come to the Lord, isn't it? Even today, even now. See, the forgiving character of God is the theme of Micah's closing words. And this should be our hope too today, that despite the many problems in the world around us, perhaps in our own lives too, 
Yet our God is the God who saves, and there's no one else like him. Today we can pray, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, save. O Lord, revive us again. The good news of the gospel is that God will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Just like he hurled Pharaoh's riders and the iron chariots into the sea as Israel escaped from Egypt, so he will do to our sins. And this victory set a pattern for all God's great acts of deliverance. The atonement of sin is foreshadowed here. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. In this verse, Micah is looking in two directions at once. He looks back to the Exodus, first of all, for the pattern. Then he looks forward to the coming of the Messiah as the fulfilment. Unfortunately, our NIV Bible kind of hides the shift in Micah's focus here in verse 19. It was a shift from he, the Lord, to, as it were, you, the Messiah. So here's verse 19 again, as it really is. He, the Lord, he, the Lord, will again have compassion on us. He will tread our sins underfoot, and you, the Messiah, will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is the great and glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he not only forgives us our sins, but he also cleanses us and restores us and clothes us in his righteousness. He hurls our sins into the depths of the sea, not into the shallows where they might pop up again at low tide, but right out into the depths. And so God keeps no record of the wrongs of which we have repented. He buries them in Christ and he will not remember them against us again. And for this we may be truly thankful. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. This promise has now been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, in his eternal reign at the Father's side in glory, from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so today we need to pray. We need to pray for a revival. We need to prepare that God might awaken our hearts and renew our zeal for the lost. We need to put Micah's plan of action into practice. For the Lord is mighty to save. I have a picture there on the screen, a picture of a Sydney Town Hall men's revival meeting in 1912. And the hall was packed just with men. For a revival had taken place. And the men came in great numbers. A hundred years ago. Do you think it can't happen again? Revival begins with repentance. This is my conclusion. Revival begins with repentance. Revival has eternal consequences, so we need to choose wisely. Revival leads to church growth, and revival brings glory to God. This is the Spirit's work, and the Lord is sovereign in it. But he has also ordained that we should work with him to cooperate with the Spirit, that, that he, through us, might fan to flame the embers 
that there might be a revival again. And yes, this calls for hearts to be prepared, for sin to be confessed. It calls for God's word to be faithfully preached and for ourselves to be willing to be prepared to do whatever he sends us to go and do. It's time to pray for a revival. Let us pray. Our Lord my God, Lord of your church, captain of the ship which sails upon the waters of tribulation and trial in our world, please send your spirit to blow into the sails a breath of wind of life and hope and power and glory that will bring people home to the shores of everlasting life in Christ. How marvellous are your deeds, how deep is your love, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God our Father. As your people today, we look to you and we pray and we ask, send a revival our way. In Jesus' name, amen.